All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars, your central hub for debate and discourse over politics with Ryan, Austin. Hey, everybody. Marcelo. Hello, everyone. Josh. How's it going there? And we have a guest for the second time, and that guest today is going to be Mick Davis. How are you doing today, Mick? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing good. So Mick Davis is a master's student at Wake Forest University going for their MA in communication with a focus in rhetoric, similar to Josh. Uh, They serve as the graduate coordinator of the Wake Forest University Speaking Center. So Mick received a bachelor's in political science and a bachelor's in communication from Tennessee Tech, which is where I met Mick, and so did Marcelo. And then we have for the second time a nationally ranked debate champion. They just keep coming on this show. So we also met on the debate circuit, and that is where Josh met Mick. And then uh, Austin and Mick, I think we're talking briefly before this, that they wound up meeting in uh, the tech jazz band. Is that correct? Was it jazz band, jazz class, something? Something with music. Textbook. Okay. So today, to give you an overview, and then we'll go into some brief announcements, we will actually be discussing Mick's master's thesis, which deals with how expertise is established in communities that study or use psychedelic drugs. So this is going to be a very different and unique topic for all of us. Excited to get into it. And we'll start with some announcements. Yeah, for some announcements, uh, this segment is sponsored by Monica Zotero. Monica did our artwork. Thank you so much. It's really cute. And um, I I love it. And I can't wait to get the stickers. All right. So I guess I'll pick it up from there to announce our social media. Um, As you all know, if you've been listening to us for any amount of time, you can find us on the gram. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and you can go subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll be able to find most of our content as we update weekly. And speaking of that YouTube channel, on that channel, as well as our Facebook page, on October 2nd, noon central, you can come and catch us live. We'd love to come and take your comments. We'll be able to engage in a new way. And, you know, hopefully that will make for a more dynamic show. You can also have the chance to see some of the more behind the scenes moments uh, that end up from the podcast version of it, because there will be no edits uh, here. So you'll get to see um, all of our tangents and things that don't make it onto the normal show because, you know, we do try to deliver within a certain time period for um, an episode link. So there'll be some great stuff. If you come and join us, we'll be glad to see you there. All right. Hit that like and subscribe to our YouTube page and or our Facebook page. That way you get the push notifications when we go live. I believe, Austin, you have the first question for this interview. Yeah, sure. I'll get us kicked off. All right. So Ryan mentioned a little bit about the work that you're doing down at Wake Forest and what you're studying for your MA. Could you kind of narrow in on the things that you're studying as far as psychedelics go and the communication aspects just to kind of get us kicked off with this, Mick? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess a good place to start would be psychedelics. The term psychedelic drug typically refers to a class of substances that acts on a specific serotonin receptor in the brain. This produces a unique alteration of your mind, which is different from any other psychoactive substance like alcohol or marijuana. Usually when people are talking about psychedelics, they're referring to mushrooms, like magic mushrooms is the street name, um, that produce a chemical called psilocybin. Or they're talking about um, LSD, which is a synthetic psychedelic that's made in a lab. My thesis also includes uh, MDMA as a class of psychedelic drugs, but there is some debate over whether or not, you know, um, neurobiologically it counts as a psychedelic. So that's what a psychedelic drug refers to. My thesis focuses on how different communities that study or use 
psychedelics basically establish their expertise when they're talking to audiences. So how they convince audiences that they are an expert on the topic of psychedelic drugs and um, expertise is basically just a class of knowledge or something um, about your personal or professional experience that gives you sort of a reason to have authority on a given subject matter. Um, and psychedelics are a really interesting vehicle to study expertise because there's not really one single qualification that makes somebody an expert in psychedelics. It, there's a lot of variation and a lot of different communities that can you know, rightfully uh, call themselves experts on psychedelics. So I hope that's a good definition. Yeah, I think that's a great place to get us started. So you said you focus in rhetoric. Do you want to talk briefly about how the rhetoric ties into the way that you study these types of things? Yeah, so um, rhetoric basically just studies uh, persuasion, or at least the type of rhetoric that I look at, and persuasive efforts. And so um, as a rhetorician, when I'm looking at things like expertise, I'm looking at um, public-facing audiences or like public facing speeches. So the texts that I'm pulling in for my thesis are congressional hearings and TED Talks and things like that, conference proceedings in some cases. Um, so I'm looking at how language is used by individuals that are representing a stakeholder group um, to convince the public or a public audience that they are an expert. So I'm looking specifically at the arguments, the word choice, things like that. Thank you for that. That's a really uh, concise explanation of a lot of things that I don't know. So I, I feel like I just have more questions than, <laughs> than, than I used to before. So focusing firstly on the, and I, I guess I will go on a tangent a little bit here, is that on the psychedelics, I want to know more about like the commercial availability of these. Not because I want to use them, if anybody, you know is listening, but uh, in the in the cases like on like, how would, you know, people come in possession of these things? Like, is everything like, in the balance of like people just using them for med medical reasons or in, in what aspects? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that people come into possession of uh, illegal substances, but um, the um, three main sort of stakeholder groups I think that I'm looking at in, well, I know that I'm looking at in this thesis are um, institutional scientists. So people that work in a place like university or a research center to study these drugs, they acquire their substances through a DEA license. So they're um, allowed to either produce them or gain access to them through the government, basically, um, or through their own labs. So they're given permission to create these substances. I'm also looking at recreational user groups um, and they generally acquire these substances through um, illicit or black markets. Um, and then I'm also looking at indigenous communities or religious groups, and they have not really a DEA license, but they have government permission to produce or acquire these substances. So there is a commercial aspect to it, but a lot of these markets, because psychedelics are a schedule one substance under the Controlled Substances Act, a lot of the ways that these are acquired are illegal. So yeah, <laughs> I hope that answers your question. <laughs> All right. I want to dive in a bit more on what you mean by expertise and in particular about how we construct um, expertise. So I want you to give me your take and then I'm going to come bother you with my philosophical ramblings after that. So in your own words, Mick, what does it mean to be an expert and how does that work in our social world? Yeah. So um, there's sort of the way that I see it is two dimensions to expertise. The first is like a material quality. So for institutional scientists, which is one of my groups, um, that would be like the degrees that you have, the acronyms behind your name, uh, the school you went to, how many years you've been studying them, how you've been studying them, the research methods you use, things like that. Um, and then the second dimension of expertise that is what I'm really focusing on in the thesis is the arguments that are used to convince an audience that you are an expert in something um, because the material qualifications of being an expert in a given field don't particularly matter very much in public deliberation if the audience doesn't think that you're a credible source or that you're an expert on what you're trying to speak on. And 
sometimes this is uh, in like philosophy literature, it's differentiated between being an authority and being in authority. So being an authority would be the degrees of experience and material dimensions of expertise. And then being in authority would be having like a social or political permission to speak on something. And the in authority aspect is what I'm really interested in in my thesis, because that's determined by interactions with the audience and arguments that are used to convince the audience that you are in authority to speak on it. Would that mean sort of like that the audience gives them the authority to like they're like how how much they're perceived as um, experts on the subject depends entirely on who's listening to them uh, if they respect their opinion or their take at all. Yeah, for sure. That it's expertise is um, really highly related, if not made up by ethos, which is a big uh, thing in rhetoric, and that that is awarded to a speaker by the audience. So um, we've all like you know listened to people that uh, are talking about something, and we know that they're not an expert, or we know that they're not credible, um, especially debaters, right? Like we've listened to people like spout opinions before, and you're like, oh, okay, like I don't know, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So you don't really consider them to be an expert or to be in an authority to speak on what they're talking about. So the sort of rhetorical or persuasive dimension of expertise is something that's that's uh, awarded by the audience to the speaker. All right, philosophical pestering time and tangents. Psychedelics are a class one and there's these different licenses. So how do you think with the discourses or you know, the, those who are in authority and rather the particular ones that are in authority affects how we perceive and work with even the social idea of psychedelics? Yeah, so it affects everything. The first sort of, I'm defending my prospectus on Wednesday, so I'm going to like pull really heavily from the way that that paper is structured. But um, the first bulk of my prospectus goes through the history of psychedelics in the United States, um, which is sort of broken up into two eras before the Controlled Substances Act was passed in 1970 and after. Um, and before, um, the discourse was much more, it, it was less dominated by the government and less dominated by institutional scientists, basically, um, because the substances weren't classified, which means that they weren't controlled by the government. And now that we have them classified as a scheduled substance, um, that means that the two main sort of power brokers in psychedelic spaces tend to be institutional scientists who have permission to use these drugs in their research and the government who gives them that permission. Um, there is a structure, a legal structure for religious organizations and indigenous groups, but it's a much weaker protection. And that is still something that is um, obviously a permission that's given by the government. So the recreational users are much more marginalized um, post-1970 and the flow of substances onto street markets and, and illicit markets are uh, obviously much more um, controlled, although not necessarily smaller um, if you look at some of the criminology research. So there's those two main sort of hands on the levers of power there as far as access is concerned. And that also controls or has a, has a controlling effect or a determining effect on what being an expert means, right? Um, because if the people that are controlling or the groups that are controlling um, the levers of power and the legal access to these drugs have a particular conception of expertise, then that affects who else can call themselves an expert or, or what arguments are used to like justify expertise outside of those groups. So it sounds like you're taking kind of a critical lens and looking at like where are the power imbalances with that. So for those that might not be aware of our listeners in communication, you have the rhetoric portion that is often combined with the power dynamics, which is the critical lens. So it's looking not just at uh, where does the power lie, but who has the power and what influence does that have. What are you finding with the tie to rhetoric and critical then? Um, if I'm interested, if I'm one of the people involved in your study, so to speak, are you more interested in how I might persuade people about this or the like? Wh who would be your audience and who would be your speaker and what would they be trying to convince them of with that expertise, so to speak? 
Uh, so do you mean like the texts that I'm analyzing? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So one of the biggest texts that I'm using in my uh, thesis is uh, a TED talk that um, Roland Griffiths gave a couple of years ago. Um, he's the head of the psychedelic lab at Johns Hopkins, basically um, explaining what his lab does and why his research is important. So the audience for that would be, you know, the types of people that go to TED conferences, but then also the broader public, right? Because um, part of the project that his lab is engaged in is sort of justifying study of substances that the government says um, have really high abuse potential and basically no medical value. So his audience is not only the people that are directly in front of him, but also the millions of viewers that watch that speech afterwards. And you can see that reflected in the arguments that he makes for why we need to justify this and what, or why we need to justify why we need to study these things and explaining sort of the research that they're focused on. Another text that I'm pulling is an interview that Timothy Leary gave when he was in prison basically trying to clear his name of wrongdoing that landed him there in the first place. Um, and in that text, he's also making pleas to the public that, um, you know, his work is important and it shouldn't be criminalized and he shouldn't be punished for what he's doing or what he tried to do. So there's examples like that. But then there's also congressional hearings, which are obviously a different setting. Timothy Leary's congressional appearances are also texts that I'm using in my thesis, where He's not only explaining to the government what psychedelics are, but also why he's studying them. And, and that is more, uh, has more of a legal tinge to it. So obviously, they're, at that point in time, they're trying to determine the legal status of these substances. So um, the audience is very a lot. That's part of the dynamic that I'm looking at, right? Because the arguments that these experts make not only differ based on who those individuals are that are speaking, but also the audiences that they're talking to. And you can see that variation reflected, especially in the two um, Leary texts, whether he's talking to the government or where, whether he's making a public plea to get out of prison. Then the Schedule 1 portion of that where the government criminalized this seems to be kind of one of those complicating factors that put these people in this situation. They're at that disadvantage, and that's mainly where their audience is targeting. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of the expertise arguments that are made to sort of the, the public in like the Habermas sense are geared towards changing public perception of these substances. Um, because what I've found by looking at expert discourse in institutional science is that a lot of these researchers really believe in the power of these substances and they find um, their legal status to be a giant hindrance to their work. And so there's this element of, you know, convincing the DEA and convincing the, the government to let them use these drugs for their research and getting access to them. But then there's also this element of trying to convince the broader public that uh, we don't necessarily need to criminalize them in the way that we do right now, um, or that we need to change their legal status in some way to make it easier to research them. So those arguments sort of are also woven into a lot of these expertise claims, sort of like they're saying, uh, my work is really important. I helped the I help this very sympathetic population in my research for these reasons, but it's very difficult for me to do my work because they are a scheduled substance. These, these drugs are really hard to get. They're very expensive. The research funding opportunities are smaller and fewer and far between. So there's things like that um, that are woven into those arguments as well that I find really interesting. <laughs> I'm sure IRB is very problematic to try to get through for those yes. who are are researching sure. this. I, I don't know much on the history of these uh, criminalization of the psychedelics. Could you maybe talk a little bit about when that happened and maybe some of the reasoning that went into that? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. It depends on if you're looking at um, synthetic or organic psychedelics. So um, in the case of synthetic psychedelics, which would be something like LSD, those were first synthesized, it would have been like the 30s or 40s, um, and specifically by Sandoz Laboratories and then brought to the United States. And you may be familiar with the MK Ultra government exper experiments that used LSD as a theoretical like mind control device, um, which were basically failed experiments. And so at that time, that would have been, I think it was like 1943 through 49-ish, that those they were bringing them to the United States and then um, starting to use them in 
those experiments. The government of the United States is basically the only entity that really had uh, access to them or knew that LSD in particular existed. And then in the 1950s, uh, the psilocybin mushrooms were first brought to the United States. Um, those are psilocybin-producing mushrooms. Magic mushrooms is what they're generally called outside of a lab. And there was a, a banker named R. Gordon Wasson who went to um, an indigenous community in Mexico with his wife uh, because he had heard of this uh, faith healer there who used these mushrooms in a faith healing practice. He lied to her to gain access to their ceremonies and persuaded her to allow photography of the ceremony. And then he went back to the United States, brought some mushrooms with him, wrote a wildly popular article in Life magazine, and that sort of set off the interest into magic mushrooms in the United States. After those sort that sort of two decades of sparking interest in these drugs, uh, there was a lot of legal limbo around psychedelics for a long, uh, a decently long time. Um, this was into the 1960s. Now you have Leary and his colleagues working at the Harvard Psilocybin Project, um, doing all of those you know, the Good Friday experiments, which are infamous now. And there was circulation of psychedelics amongst basically intellectuals and upper-class people in the United States. And then they slowly percolated into uh, street markets and the youth started using them. And there's a really interesting dimension to this sort of legal history where the counterculture movement, uh, you know, groups in San Francisco, anti-Vietnam protesters, things like that, those groups of people, um, the nation's youth, uh, started to use these drugs. And then the government, specifically the Nixon administration at this point, became very concerned about psychedelics and how they were, you know, ruining America, um, which that coupled with the issues surrounding marijuana and some other things basically prompted Congress uh, and the Nixon administration to pass the Controlled Substances Act, which formally schedules all of these drugs. So that's sort of a crash course in the history of psychedelics. But um, I really recommend Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, if you want to know more about it. But a solid like 25 pages in my perspective is just on this history. It's, it's long and storied, but that's the basics. Well, that definitely helps catch me up and kind of, yeah, I think that was a good overview. Were there any questions on the overview before we kind of asked um, a little bit more specific questions about expertise? Yeah, sure. I have a question. So just to run it back to make sure I didn't miss it, we're all familiar like culturally with psychedelics in like the 60s, 70s and everything. So you said that it was typical for some like higher upper class elite type people to have access. Was the interface between elites having access and then it trickling the population? Uh, what was the like approximate time period? Are we talking like 20 years, 30 years? Just I might have missed it. Yeah, um, it's it's mostly like a 10 to 15 year period. Um, so the, there's this really famous individual named Al Hubbard, who um, is a really elusive figure in the history of psychedelics, um, who acquired an FDA license to experiment with psychedelics. And he did so both in academic and recreational settings. And he basically distributed his supply of LSD across the United States to public intellectuals and researchers in mostly recreational contexts. So that's an example of like that that happened throughout the 1960s. And that's how um, a lot of uh, public intellectuals and, and people like Tim Leary in particular were introduced to these drugs. And that would have been in the very early 1960s or late 1950s. Um, so you're basically talking about a period between 1955 and like 1969, right before the Controlled Substances Act. And once the you know elites in our society are introduced to these substances, uh, they trickle into um, you know counterculture movements, youth circles, things like that. So it's a really um, rapid period of change and pretty condensed time. But it's yeah, it's about 10 to 15 years. So with matters of 
expertise. We There's a, a bit of a parallel theory in mass communication theory called the gatekeepers. And it looks at how, you know, especially in the past, how because of the way the media was structured, um, there were select few people who got to choose what information got out to the public and what was going to be considered important and therefore covered by the media. I feel like, you know, with like looking at your research and looking at like community ideas and it becoming more kind of institutionalized and formal study. Does it feel like that we're, it's almost going towards a gatekeeper um, type situation or does or do you feel like the community definitions and the community understandings are still prevailing out in the broader circles and how we you know consider and think about these drugs even on like a national scale? Yeah, so um, that's a really interesting question. I think about it more in terms of boundaries. So my thesis addresses the idea of boundary work and how boundaries around a field and boundaries around um, science versus non-science, legitimate versus illegitimate drug use, and um, credible versus non-credible sources of information are produced through these expertise arguments. And I would say that, you know, in the broader public, the American public, our understanding of psychedelic drugs and their place in our society and what constitutes legitimate use and research with them um, is very much uh, determined and controlled by institutional scientists and the government. But there are pretty significant, like, legal loopholes and situations that allow these drugs to continue to circulate pretty broadly in American society. And so that engenders or helps to foster um, a really vibrant and relatively large group of recreational users who use these drugs illegally. And amongst those circles, the narrative around psychedelics and, and what constitutes uh, legitimate use of them is much more um, community oriented and dominated by their personal experiences. And then there's indigenous communities, right, who use these in spiritual practices and, and in religious ceremonies right. and things like that. And their use of these substances and understanding of them is uh, very, very different from those other two. So there's sort of those three modes but um, because access to the drugs are still controlled by those, the government and institutional science, the public's understanding of them tends to stem from those two groups' understanding of them. So I guess I'll set us up for the next question, which is, you. I think you did a great job setting up uh, what expertise is and talking uh, generally off of Josh's question of how that's established. Could you maybe touch on how credibility might be established in communities who study or use psychedelics specifically? Depending on the community, uh, the arguments sort of take what I argue in my thesis is two different forms. Um, expertise arguments in institutional science and amongst like government experts and industry leaders and things like that tend to be things like what I refer to in my um, writing as uh, professional authenticity. So they establish their expertise by making arguments like my research methods are very valid or they're very reliable or they're very strong or they're very useful. Um, and I have been doing this for X number of years and this is the population that I directly create benefit for by doing it. So they um, establish their expertise by drawing from the thing that they engage in professionally. In indigenous communities and in recreational user groups, uh, they establish their expertise a little bit more based on personal experiences. So the example that I uh, like to give a lot is that there's these really large uh, Reddit subreddits um, that are focused around the use of magic mushrooms in particular. And they those groups do not care what institutional science is doing for the most part. They want to hear from somebody and talk to somebody who has taken those drugs um, personally. And so um, the people who sort of represent those groups and, and um, become experts in that community is... Uh, they're making arguments like, you know, I took this amount of drugs and this is what happened to me and this is what might happen to you. So those are more like personal authenticity or personal experience based arguments of expertise, which has an effect on the understanding of the drug and who can use it and what what is considered 
illegitimate or legitimate use in that context. All right. Now, uh, here's the fun question for the rhetorician to make a moral judgment. Which is better? Uh, uh, which is better? I'm not sure. Uh, that's a that's a really good question. I think I think all have their their place, right? So every every stakeholder group, um, every interest group has their own purpose that they serve, uh, and I'm not sure that there's really um, a moral judgment that I could assign to any of them over another. But I will say that uh, one of the sort of subtexts in my thesis that I wish, if I could write a second thesis, maybe I would write about, is the general lack of respect for indigenous communities and their rights to use these substances. A lot of our early research and understanding of psychedelics stems from what Western science learned from indigenous communities. And some scholars have argued that that constitutes essentially intellectual property theft. So if I'm passing moral judgment on any of these groups, I would say that I find a lot of the lack of reverence and respect for indigenous groups, which you typically see in the government in particular, but also um, to a certain extent in institutional science to be bad. I think there needs to be more credit um, assigned to uh, what what is what um, indigenous communities have taught us about these substances in particular, but all of their understandings of expertise and conception of these substances has its place uh, in our sort of holistic understanding as the public of what these drugs are and what they're for and who should use them. So kind of tailing off of that, would you say that from an institutional science type standpoint, would those personal experience have no purchase or that just kind of vary from uh, reviewer to reviewer, so to speak? I'm not going to pretend like I'm even passingly familiar with the literature on this stuff. This is all very new. Yeah, I mean, so it pre-1970, before the Controlled Substances Act, it was very normal um, for scientists to uh, engage in, or certain groups of people, certain groups of scientists, to engage in auto-experimentation, to take the drugs themselves and to um, talk about those experiences. Timothy Leary is the famous example, but he's just one of many um, who took psychedelics themselves, wrote about it, and was very honest about how that um, played into his research practices. Um, Post-1970, for obvious-ish reasons, um, you don't see that as much because because scientists who admitted to doing that would be copying to a felony, basically, or some sort of legal uh, misstep. So you, you, there, there is a role that, that these personal experiences play in establishing expertise in institutional science. I think it's often a matter of what these individuals are willing to admit to or willing to um, incorporate into their um, narr- like personal narrative or their narrative of their expertise. And um, there's a really interesting um, Vice article that um, a journalist named Shayla Love wrote in 2019 about auto-experimentation amongst institutional scientists. And in it, there's a researcher who basically says that he thinks that everybody that studies psychedelics is using them. I, I don't know if he's correct about that, but there are people in psychedelic science in institutions that do take them and will admit to it, including some people cited in that article and were interviewed for that article. But it's in general, um, the personal plays a much smaller role than it did before these drugs were scheduled. This is going to be a little bit overly academic specific. To throw back some history of like the social sciences and especially like critical theory and other forms of study in academia, throughout the 60s, um, especially into the 70s and 80s, there was a lot more censorship in academia than there used to be in a certain degree. And a large part of this had to do um, with, with, with what we now call McCarthyism and where professors were a lot more concerned to express themselves and what they really thought of being labeled, you know, seditionist or any, you know, variant of the time of, you know, to potentially lose their spot at their university. So it definitely feels kind of in a similar sense of like how like our academic, you know, investigation is, you know, hindered, you know, some you know, a lot of the times rightfully by the law, but still does get put in this weird position of where what we're able to research is sometimes at the 
kind of mercies and the whims of the government. Because the funny thing is, like, if you take psychedelics and you mention it in a research paper, technically you haven't committed a crime. Taking psychedelics isn't a crime. Possessing psychedelics is a crime. So you can, you're in this really weird gray zone of like, you can be like, yeah, I did these things, but you kind of feel like you're painting a target on yourself being like, yeah, hello, DEA, come knock on my door. You guys will probably find. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of interesting. So that's you're right. One of many legal loopholes around um, psychedelic drugs. The legal loopholes surrounding um, magic mushrooms, I think, are particularly interesting. But um, yeah, I think it's uh, sort of more about. I, I view it as a reaction to um, you know the history of psychedelics. Right. When I think of like the way that institutional experts are um, justifying their their expertise or, or explaining it to an audience, I think more of. Um, they're trying not to be Timothy Leary. They're trying not to be their predecessors because there's this sort of, uh, Michael Pollan talks about this in his book quite a bit. Um, there's this sort of understanding that the actions of their predecessors were the reason why the drugs got scheduled in the first place. So if they go too far off the rails, they will be perceived to be doing something perceived by the government, perceived by the public, perceived by the people that fund their research to be doing something that's like inappropriate or not relevant. And then the sort of rug will get pulled out from under them again, because that's very much what happened when the drugs were scheduled in 1970. So yeah, it is, it is somewhat analogous to something like McCarthyism, but I think it's much more ambiguous in a sense, like it's, or it's not really like written down anywhere that you can't say this or that. It's just this idea that they, they don't, I don't think, want to be perceived as uh, hippies or crazy, uh, which reflects their opinions of the other communities, right? It reflects their opinions of recreational users, it reflects opinions of indigenous communities, decriminalization advocates, things like that. So I think it's more about justifying their work than it is about anything else. It's a lot of it, you got to follow the money. It's about getting the funding and things like that. Yeah. I also have the thought that it has a lot to do with the idea of establishing expertise. Like if you're up in your paper being like, yeah, I take psychedelics, you know, twice a month and I'm here to tell you about how they're beneficial and the thing that's going to save everyone. And I've got absolutely great provable research and everyone should total, totally believe me. It really does seem like at least in the idea of institutional authority that or in, in, in the idea of institutional expertise that it may May come off as like either a conflict of interest or in particular something that's kind of like undermining your argument rather that it becomes I'm not sure if it's like if it's self-serving or something like that but you, yeah I can definitely see where being like yeah I use psychedelics a lot can have impact on your at that point institutional expertise yeah for sure. Then there's been social science research that's looked into that. There's a really interesting study that I cite in my thesis, basically trying to get at, like, does self-admitted substance use decrease credibility? And to a certain extent, it does. It, it That study found that it did. Um, it decreases credibility for the individual researcher, but not necessarily for the work itself. So association with things like the counterculture movement or hippies or user groups in general, which both of those sort of terms stand in for, um, recreational users, that has some sort of effect on the perceived credibility of the individual, but not necessarily the research that they do, which I think is really interesting and sort of piques my interest into this idea that expertise can either be established professionally through your research methods and is emphasizing the work that you do or established personally, which institutional science sort of sees as a not as beneficial as, as personal or professional justifications for their expertise. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stop this uh, tangent, but I also thought this would be a good point to uh, for our audience to explain a bit of the difference and how there's different approaches to research. Like if someone were to take psychedelics and then go on the process of writing a paper that explained their own personal experiences, or maybe even explained, you know, what it's like uh, being in a group of recreational users and they all, you know, take the drugs together, we would refer to that study as an autoethnographic study. And there there's this always a mix of what that means and how that entails and what its validity and reliability is compared to other social scientific or quantitative, which is done with statistical analysis um, survey. So there is different types of knowledges, knowledges and fundamentally a different research category for people who um, take the drug and come and report back on it on their own experiences. I would say then that's probably like a lot why a lot of research has turned to probably looking at like ethnographic. Um, basic ethnographic, which is spending you know a lot of time in the community, but not necessarily participating in the community, or more like focus group or um, survey collection, qualitative or interview like survey collection quant for the quantitative stuff, and like surveys or um, focus groups and interviews for qualitative research as well. And that does have in the general um, academic perspective of research more more validity. So just as one last point of clarification. Yeah, there actually is some difference that we can, I think we can contribute at least to some of it, but not all of it. I do think there's something a lot to be said about the stereotype, though, as you mentioned before, Mick. Yeah, and I mean, most of the institutional experts that I'm focusing on um, are not even necessarily in the social sciences. Um, some of them are, but um, a lot of them are um, neurologists, psychiatrists, especially social scientists, depending on what you're doing, and like chemistry researchers, chemists, things like that. Um, neurobiology, which is a term I was not familiar with uh, before starting this work. So um, some of them are in the social sciences, and there is certainly is autoethnographic and ethnographic work um, in this space. Um, but the bulk of it that drives public funding, the public funding of research in this area, and that drives certainly the commercialization and medicalization of these substances comes out of the hard sciences and how social scientists versus hard scientists um, justify their expertise and describe their work is also a really interesting dynamic because there's a little bit more wiggle room to bring in the personal narrative in social science, some types of it than there is in hard sciences. Uh, Marcella, do you have any specific questions you might uh, want to follow up with on before we move on? I guess like overall, like I'm just, I haven't been talking a lot because I've just been like trying to like process the idea of like credibility, especially when it comes from like the position of the government that has to regulate, like Mick explained it incredibly well. Um, and I'm trying to like apply it to things that I'm a little more familiar with. And psychedelics is definitely no one, not one of those things. Um, and it's this idea that obviously when the government is regulating something, they are the de facto experts on it. But it's also, to me, creates a, a, a type of uh, conflict of interest, if, if you can call it that. Because like they're giving the hats to people, but they are also wearing the hats. So they're like, yeah, of course, like trust us. And not to say that I don't trust the government, which for anyone listening, I do. I love our government. Um, but <laughs> yeah, that, that that gives me stuff to think. Because like again, if community organizers had that, I like you know had that respect, and 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 they didn't have to jump through so many hoops to gain the same amount of credibility um, and authority as the government, then things would be different. But it seems like that's not the case. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, there are really strong opinions in all three of these stakeholder groups um, that are reflected in 
a lot of the texts that I look at about the DEA in particular and how law enforcement view these substances because the permission structure in a certain sense creates uh, the credibility because access to the drugs is so important for all of these groups, um, which is, of course, determined by the DEA uh, in particular, but, you know, the U.S. government in general. Well, before we move on to our hot takes, do you have anything that you would like to add that we might not have asked you about yet? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think we've covered a lot of it. I mean, it's uh, it's a really fascinating and, and very deep topic. I could probably spend the entire interview uh, discussing just the history of the drugs, but I, I guess I would just like encourage everybody to do their research about them and to look into them because I think that within the next six to ten years, we're probably going to see prescription drugs developed from psychedelics, and they're going to become increasingly important tools for treating mental health issues especially things like complex PTSD and um, treatment-resistant depression. And so I think any like you know person who wants to be well-informed and educated on any of those issues should definitely look into resources uh, to learn more about these drugs because they're going to burst onto the scene in a new way soon. So, yeah. so then the last question before we go to hot takes that I have is you've talked a lot about establishing credibility. Can you make an appeal to us and to the audience about the so what for your thesis? Can you tell us, um, you know, what's one of the main things that you've taken away, one of the things you hope to come out of it, or perhaps, you know, so just what would be the big takeaway in a nutshell? Yeah, so I think the, the big like so what at the end of my thesis um, is that I've, I've spilled all this ink and I've, I've done all this work uh, to try to call attention to the fact that expertise is not concrete. Um, I think a lot of times, especially in academia, we like to think that expertise is only material, that it only comes from your degrees or your years of experience or the type of work that you do or how good you are at it. But there is a really important and deep um, personal narrative element to expertise that I don't think uh, is really recognized um, in the same way that um, professional or material expertise is. And so the thing that I'm trying to call attention to is that expertise can stem from something other than education and experience, which I think contributes to the rhetorical literature about expertise in general. But I think it also is an important thing for the general public to understand is that who we consider to be experts is a product of who we assign the status of expert to as an audience, as the public, which is really what I'm getting at in this thesis. Okay, well, thank you so much for packing all of this so concisely and so eloquently, as Marcelo mentioned before, into something where we can walk away and have at least some idea of what you've been studying for the last several years. So we will be right back with our hot takes. And we're back. We never actually go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're going to hand this over to Austin in just a second here, but um, our hot takes this week are going to look a little bit different than they usually do. These hot takes might be our overall thoughts, something we've learned, or maybe just a final point before we go. So Austin. All right. I'm definitely going to be extremely confrontational in my hot take. Not completely kidding. Mick, thank you so much for the great information. Coming from a uh, the background that I do, uh, you know, we each have our own areas of expertise and, well, so to speak. You hear or you like approach something from a different area and it's hard to judge expertise. I honestly haven't given much thought to that, but I'm glad that people are interested in doing research in that direction so we can understand more of that and learn how to get good information. From all the information that you shared, it mm. sounds like there's a lot of red tape, <laughs> which is understandable with um, anything drug related as far as the government goes. On a personal level, I wouldn't have much interest in doing these things, but from a governmental side of things, I do think that the government should be focused on more serious crimes as opposed to minor drug offenses, but that's beside the point. From an institutional science standpoint, I do think that researchers should be more freed up to study these things. Things. Like 
Nick, like you'd mentioned at the end of what you want to share with us at the end of this, there are some real implications as far as mental health medication, and there might even be tangential ap applications for uh, pain medications. Uh, we've seen a lot of the crises lately with opiates and everything else. I think having things that are closer to more naturally derived would be good for the general populace. So it would it would be good to see more research being done into these more natural substances as far as how it could help people. So again, thank you so much for the great information. Definitely taking a lot away from this one. Yeah, I'm gonna. Of course, I'm. In, I'm very much so in love with the idea of expertise and how we make it. Because even beyond, um, you know, the applied things that you're studying, Mick, I feel like a lot of the even a lot of the challenges we're having in today's political world stem down to questions of expertise. Is the CDC and FTA and the federal government a position of expertise, or um, is it someone else? And I feel like a lot of kind of the argumentation as we've seen people become more resistant to some of the broader institutions of authority and of knowledge as we you know have progressed more into this digital age as you know in mass communication we've seen that the gatekeepers of keeping information has fallen and so now everyone's out there making their own information oftentimes on their own terms for the uh, first time and for a lot of you know communities throughout the world that's the first time they've had that sigh of relief of being able to define themselves and who they are, what it means to be them, you know, since you know the beginning of like colonial imperialism and so and so it does definitely seem to have to walk this hard line because i'll, I'll agree I've, I've read some you know when you've done cursory glances through psychedelic forms and stuff like that and you see things you're like um this is gonna get someone hurt and i think it always does have to end up like um balancing that out whether it's not even the drug itself being that dangerous but people just not understanding how it's going to affect them and it also the barriers of information through the illegality of these substances kind of does create more danger in its own sense because people can't find out what's safe or not because they're having to seek out these alternative channels of information rather than a you know knowledgeable expert source to tell them what's safe. So I think this is like really cool beyond your applied study just looking at psychedelics. I think there's a lot of neat philosophy that I'm sure you'll keep getting the chance to explore while you get your PhD. All right. Uh, I'll say again, Mick, thank you so much for joining us. I, I'm like Marcella. I was just trying to sort through a lot of the stuff um, and to try to come up with additional follow-up questions. And you did such a great job just really boiling it down to something that's very easy to digest, especially for how complicated and complex each part of this thesis actually is from the critical part to the rhetorical part to the experts and the psychedelics. So I think one of my big takeaways here, because when I actually reached out to Mick to see if uh, they'd be interested in doing this interview, I was like, I, I mentioned something about them being an expert on the subject and the response was well I'm not actually an expert and it's like well I think that something that grad students tend not to do very well is take credit and I think it's very clear with the way that things were presented that you you know this material inside and out so uh, you're gonna do amazing on the defense of that prospectus coming up here and I think my other big takeaway I'll, I'll agree with Austin was just the the government seems to be complicating a lot of things particularly when they didn't necessarily need to and it's interesting to me all of the hoops that people have to jump through just to try to do research on something like this. I'm glad that for my IRB approval to where I can actually go collect <laughs> my data is not quite this complicated. So anyway, um, best of luck in the coming weeks as you defend and wrap up and then move on to your PhD. I'll first I'll agree with Austin for sure. Uh, for legal reasons, I am not interested in the consumption or the uh, purchase of any of the, the substances that we've talked about in, in, in today's call. Um, second, 
I usually, I feel I'm on the side of like government and government intervention in most of these uh, takes. But today has also made me reconsider in a way like, um, and thinking about other topics that I can apply this to. And one of them is vaccines. Now, I, I have still have the same takes on vaccines. I think they're great. It should be taken, especially the COVID vaccine. Everyone should take it because it's safe and secure. But it's also it also made me think about people who are skeptical of the vaccine. And it's uh, the people who are telling you besides scientists and, and or basically the entire scientific community is telling you that the vaccine is safe. Uh, vaccine skeptics are saying, well, the government is approving it, but I don't trust the government. So they're not giving the government the credibility and the authority for them to like trust the vaccine. So there's really, if, since they have lost that trust, to me, like it, it makes sense in their own way it's like why they would be like, no, I'm, I'm not going to take it, you know, because like, I don't, I don't believe them. And it doesn't matter how many like FDA stickers the vaccine has on it. Like it doesn't make a difference to me. Um, I, I think uh, studies like these can be used to look at possibly misinformation and how like this can be construed in a different way depending on who's saying what things. Mick, thank you so much for coming. I've known you for a very long time and I don't see you often enough. Uh, you, you were the last person I saw before the world ended <laughs> the last yes. year. <laughs> and uh, it's been it's been too long. Yes, I totally agree. I um I can't wait for this to be a little bit less uh, or a little bit more over so that I can see people again. I'm really looking forward to NCA in November and like fingers crossed that it happens in person um, so that I can see. Yeah, I can see at least a few of you. Um, but yeah, I, it's interesting that you mentioned vaccines um, because there's a pretty deep literature um, on um, vaccine hesitancy and, and the concept of expertise. And you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of the reason why we see vaccine hesitancy in some communities is because they don't afford expertise to institutional science or the government um, and understanding that expertise is something that's assigned by the audience and isn't a inherent quality of the speaker or of the entity that is you know trying to transmit information on something um, I think is sort of the first step into countering things like vaccine hesitancy um, to understand who those communities regard as experts and to understand their motivations for listening to them and that's something that I'm, I'm trying to uh, get get at uh, in a sense in this thesis is that expertise is not only something that's assigned but it's something that is um, really site-specific and, and based in a community and determines our actions. I don't know if that's necessarily a hot take, but uh, I, I would say that like, hot takes on psychedelics in general, the war on drugs has been a failure. Um, it is incredibly um, destructive and constrained our um, view of drugs in general, but specifically in my case, you know, topic of interest uh, for psychedelics. Um, it's constrained our view of um, what constitutes legitimate drug use. It's constrained our view of what counts as a medicine or as a um, good use of a drug. Um, it's constrained our view of expertise. And it has, um, as with most things that the U.S. government does, um, continued to damage the livelihoods and the um, quality of life for indigenous communities and marginalized groups that really value these substances in a way that um, Western medicine and Americans we'll never really be able to understand. So yeah, my hot takes are war on drugs, bad, and indigenous rights, always. All right. Well, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Join us again next week. Goodbye for now. 